Democracy Nerd, I am Jeff Smith. Today, we're gonna to talk about political cleavages, fault lines used by political parties to earn majorities or at least garner majorities, how they use those lines, how they use those cleavages to promote or mitigate social inequalities. For example, it's often been said that older people in the United States tend to vote more conservative than my younger voters. Older voters also tend to vote with more frequency or to develop voting habits. So conservative politicians favor policies that could win support from older voters. Is this a political cleavage, especially in the United States? How does it apply perhaps elsewhere? What other cleavages exist among world's democracy? It feels like I've been saying the word cleavages a lot of times with us for that discussion is Amory Gethin, is co-author of a recent volume, Political Cleavages and Social Inequalities, a study of 50 democracies. I feel good that there are 50 democracies. I wonder if in some of our previous authors would argue that all of them are still meriting the moniker. Amory, you're joining us from Harvard, uh, visiting from the Paris School of Economics, where you're working on your PhD. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us about the research project, uh, Tracking Political Cleavages. How did you get it going and what got you uh, onto the topic? So this project started really when uh, Thomas Piketty uh, worked on the long-run evolution of political divides in France, the US, and the UK. And he showed that there had been major realignments in, in voting behaviors in these three countries since the 1950s. And slowly, we started gathering a team to try and look at other Western democracies, how voting behaviors changed in them. And then gradually, we kind of went beyond that and we decided to gather all our case studies in a collective volume, uh, where the objective is simply to track the evolution of uh, who votes for which parties over time to try and better understand how democracies um, oppose voters, oppose parties based on different kinds of issues and how these issues are embedded in uh, conflicts between different social groups. Uh, slowly, we gathered a team of uh, 19 researchers to collectively try to, um, to extend this sort of simple descriptive analysis of political divides and the outcome of this collective endeavor was uh, this book where we study 50 democracies so 50 countries in which elections have been held regularly for some time and this i, I really want to insist uh, includes all 21 western democracies but also includes 29 uh, democracies over the five continents uh, in africa in latin america in asia and this is i think what's quite new with this book uh, the fact that we put together in one book, both Western and non-Western democracies. How do you define electoral democracies for purposes of the work? What gets you in? What gets you out? So none of the countries we studies are, are perfect democracies at all. I mean, it's very difficult to think that any democracy today is a perfect democracy. The main rule that we chose uh, to, to study the countries we look at in this book is um, these countries uh, had regular elections in the past uh, in the past decades. These elections have to some extent opposed parties um, drawing on different groups. 
So in countries where there's only one party, for instance, it's not possible to do the analysis uh, that we do. And of course, we wanted to study countries where there were uh, surveys that allowed us to look at uh, how voters vote. And, and of course, there are varying degrees at which the elections we study are free and fair. But our main objective here is to understand how political parties come to embody specific interests and how this changes over time. In any case, do we claim in, in no, in, we do not claim at all that, uh, that uh, all the elections that we study are perfectly free or fair. What are some of the key questions in addition, say more about the key questions that you were looking for answers for. Uh, you talk about class-based, identity-based factors in structuring divisions, structuring cleavages, and determining electoral behaviors. What were your core curiosities in approaching this uh, this set of studies? So it's true that we we come from um, we come from this general idea that class-based divides have declined to some extent in Western democracies. So we wanted to understand how economic issues uh, matter in elections. How has this changed over time? And how is this happening too in, in, in non-Western democracies? And uh, what we find indeed is that while class-based divides have been decreasing in the West uh, and identity-based conflicts have been rising, well, in, in a number of non-Western democracies, for instance, Brazil, but to some extent, one could also say that about a country such as South Africa or Thailand, where the class divides have actually risen and so socioeconomic issues seems to come to the forefront of politics, just as they used to uh, in Western democracies in the 50s. So all we do in the book is to try and understand how these socioeconomic issues have changed, how they interact also with identity-based conflicts, whether religious divides, ethnic divides, uh, generational divides, and to try and just have this, this global map of how these different issues interact uh, to be able to have some meaningful comparative uh, historical perspective. Dr. Ramon on India, previously on this show, we had representatives from the Varieties of Democracy Institute to talk about the backsliding of democracy in India and how that's helped turn the majority of the world towards authoritarianism. Basically, they track who still counts the democracy versus who's sort of over versus under the line. And, you know, countries, as you said, there's, it, it's not as simple as any country being a full democracy or any country being not at all, but for the purposes of their definitions. So we're interested in the case. We have been interested in the past, in the case of India in specific. Is it is it fair to look at India as representative of the state of global democracy? How accurate of an indicator is it to look at those 900 million uh, voters out of a global population, or at least human beings out of a global population of 7.8 billion, uh, comprising just shy of 13% of the world's population? What can you tell us about India? So you're right to point that out. It's very interesting because in the book, we have uh, something like eight chapters on Western democracies and Eastern Europe before we come to India. And just India by itself, the chapter on India uh, gathers more voters than the eight chapters that precede, uh, that precede India's chapter. So India is a, is a huge country. It's, it's a subcontinent and it doesn't have one party system. It actually has several party systems and um, parties operating at the regional level. And as you mentioned, uh, several hundred million voters today. So it's a, it's a major case study. So as I would say of other countries, I can't say really that India is representative of global democracy because there are huge variations across the world in how democracy works. And there are even variations in, in party systems and voting behaviors within India. But certainly India is a very fascinating case study to look at all these various divides, caste divides, religious divides, class divides, and how they changed over time. 
would you say, and we can start with India or you can start wherever you want. What would you say are the most important divisions and cleavages right now in electoral politics? So I'd say today in India's uh, party systems, is, although it's very complex, there are two variables that are really key to, to understanding uh, voting behaviors and generally political conflicts. One is religion. There's a huge divide between uh, the Hindu majority and the Muslim minority, and this divide has risen substantially in the past decade. Um, the Bharatiya Janata Party, so the, the Hindu nationalist party that is today ruling India, uh, with Narendra Modi as it, at its head, um, is a party that explicitly in its history has opposed to the integration uh, of Muslim voters in India, of Muslim citizens. And today, less than 10% of them uh, support this party. So this is a huge divide, given that this party uh, captures more than 30% of votes in national elections. And the other key divide today has to do with caste. I say that again, so in- say that again, 10, 10%. 10% of which group supports which? I want to make sure I have that fact, that we all have that fact. So less than 10% of Muslim voters today support, uh, support uh, the Bharatiya Janata Party, so the Hindu nationalist party that is ruling India today, meaning that 90% of them suppose, support opposition parties. And this has directly to do with the fact that this party has always explicitly been opposed to the integration of Muslims uh, in in India's uh, political community. So, um, so now with Mo- with Modi, it's clear that there has been uh, using religious divide has been a path to power. Right, that has been it seems sort of an obvious, uh, sort of pretty clear uh, manifestation of of using a religious division. Uh, so we've got that one. What else in India is particularly driving driving division? I will want to get back to the United States, but I, the international examples are maybe even more interesting. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the second variable, which is key to understanding uh, Indian political divide, it's caste. So India yeah. has been historically structured by a, a caste system, meaning that uh, so, so caste is a complex uh, variable, but uh, put simply, Indian the in, Indian people um, tend to be affiliated with one uh, caste, and caste is hereditary. And uh, in Hinduism, caste is hierarchical, uh, meaning that uh, at the top of the caste hierarchy, traditionally you have uh, Brahmins, the sort of educated uh, elite, so to say. And then you have other uh, upper castes, and then at the middle of this hierarchy, you have what has been called other backward castes with backward classes and outside of the caste system so the the, the lowest uh, in 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 the hindu society the the lowest caste is uh, um, scheduled caste so traditionally considered untouchable by the other castes and this is a very very strong political divide in india today hindu nationalist parties including today's Bharatiya Janata Party so the ruling party has always been supported uh, much more by upper castes than by lower castes and so this consists really the, the second most important divide in India today. In the United States, you made the point that uh, in your work, you made the point that the class division in the United States, wealth division in the United States used to be a, a more clear predictor of voting behavior, that the, that the Democratic Party was the more party of the working class and of the lower classes uh, the, that earned significant support and earned a significant support from those voters, less so now. Uh, and, and interestingly, the party that, uh, even though it is the party that supports, uh, that casts its votes for policies that uh, 
that are focused on on helping lower and middle lower and middle income folks directly. Uh, it is not now there are more higher income people supporting Democrats than in the past. It's become less important. You might have comment on that, but what I find interesting in the United States, it seems to me now that the identity in the United States of providing cleavage is political identity itself. Racial identity is may become more important as a as an as a predictor of political party uh, but it seems to me that the driving force of the previous party's president was in fact its opposition to the democratic party that's that's its uniting feature more than wealth maybe not more than religion and race but wondering what do you think are the key cleavages defining united states politics now so, I mean, this is a, a complex question, but to, to go back in time, indeed, as you mentioned, uh, the 50s and 60s were characterized by the fact that uh, low income and lower educated voters. So it's important to, to talk about these two dimensions, I think, of education and income or wealth. Um, and, and low income, low educated voters voted a lot, like substantially for the Democratic Party, uh, whether they were uh, white or black. This has changed over time. But I think that uh, one needs, again, to distinguish between income and education. So it's really the educational divide that has substantially reversed in the U.S. Uh, and today, higher education predicts very strongly support for the Democratic Party, while income in the end is actually not so much related to voting behavior today in the U.S. once you account for education. And even with the, if, if we exclude the, the exception that uh, Donald Trump consisted, then higher income voters uh, remain to some extent slightly more likely to vote for uh, the Republican Party. So there's been a divergence between these two dimensions of inequality that are education and income. And this has arguably played a role in uh, limiting the, the sort of bargaining power of workers and also limiting the political representation of inequality. The racial divide is also... So you said something key, important. But you said... Mm -hmm. you, you said something important. You said that the fact that lower income voters and working class voters are not united together in a party is reducing their power to get the kind of government that would be useful to them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is what we argue in the book. Um, essentially, when the party manages to gather voters from disprivileged backgrounds, regardless of their ethnic, religious, uh, geographical identities, this contributes to greater representation of these voters. And, and the fact that higher educated voters now are very strongly supportive of the Democratic Party, and many of, of its leaders, in a sense, embody this new educated elite, while high income and high wealth voters do continue to be uh, voting more for the Republican Party, this has led to what we propose to call in the book a multi-elite party system, where an educated elite uh, is, is uh, representing what has been called traditionally the left in many Western democracies, and not only in the US, while uh, high income, high wealth elites continue to vote for the right. And this arguably plays a role in limiting the representation of inequality and also excluding some of these low income, low educated voters from, from the, the political system. How do you explain that, uh, that cleavage or maybe that splitting of low income voters in the United States and potentially in other countries is it as simple as sort of similar to the Modi move, where if you appeal to if you appeal to race and religion and and even political party identity, uh, if you fund enough and put enough money into using sort of identity tools 
to divide, then you can patch over economic differences and make economic differences not as an important driver of voting behavior. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. How do you describe what's happened in the United States in terms of you know, working class voters not having, uh, not having a somewhat more unified uh, voice? I think it's, again, a complex process, but um, I think the salience of economic and sociocultural issues should not be uh, considered separately, but should be studied jointly. And so arguably the rise of cultural conflicts today in the US and in other Western democracies also has to do with the fact that many left-wing parties um, embraced the sort of um, extremely liberal pro-capitalist ideology uh, that characterized the 80s and and onwards. Um, And so many of of voters who used to vote for these parties uh, for economic reasons, have been so disappointed by the policies implementing by social democrats uh, in the West that uh, it has become easier for uh, right-wing and conservative parties to appeal to voters based on these sort of um, uh, cultural or uh, identity-based issues. What are some of the... So give give an example of that. If you're going to give your most clear example of that trajectory, uh, what would be... Yeah, tell that story a little bit more. What's your favorite example, or if not favorite example, what do you think is one of the clearest examples of that shift, of that trajectory uh, towards dissatisfaction with government solutions? Mm, I'd say that Eastern Europe provides a really good example of what happens when uh, social democratic parties deceive uh, their traditional working class electorates. And, and the, so in the Czech Republic, for instance, the social democratic party in the 90s uh, really decided to continue promoting uh, class-based issues and socioeconomic issues. And this led to a sort of persistence of class-based conflict in, in the Czech Republic and to a lower rise of far-right movements. On the contrary, if we look at Hungary, while Hungary's socialist parties embraced the the transition in the 90s and implemented jointly with right-wing parties uh, the transition to a market economy, which led to dramatic distributional consequences and the rise of inequality. And what happened? Well, this party simply collapsed, and this arguably contributed to the rise of Fidesz, today's a uh, ruling party, which uh, which is far-right nationalist party led by uh, by Viktor Orban, this party led by Viktor Orban, the Fidesz. Um, so the strategies of social democratic parties play a role in generating the rise of these sociocultural issues. Uh, I think these two examples are really uh, revealing of this trend. I want to jump back into Turkey. You mentioned the Czech Republic and Hungary. Uh, as two examples of countries where social democratic parties had failed on promises of working people that helped make more space to allow for the rise of authoritarian political parties. All right, well, if if these do-gooders aren't going to do me any good, well, maybe these do-batters, they'll do me some good because at least they'll crush my enemies. Uh, let's talk about Turkey, where backsliding into authoritarianism, authoritarianism excuse me, has posed big consequences for both Europe and the Middle East. Uh, you include Turkey in a chapter that also focuses on Algeria and Iraq. What are some of the similarities with regards to with respect to political cleavages for those countries? It's simply a matter of conflict between Sunni and Shia, Islam, Middle East, North African countries. Say more. So there's a tendency indeed to, to think usually that um, countries outside the West and particularly countries in the Middle East um, would be particularly subject to uh, ethnic or uh, unsolvable tribal or religious divides. Um, What we find in the book is that's not entirely correct uh, at all. 
to some extent, actually, it's, it's the West that's kind of uh, tribalizing in many dimensions. And although, of course, um, these different uh, types of identities play a role in voting behavior, we do observe also some um, importance of uh, education or income or age in determining the vote. Um, so it's, it's much more complex than that. Iraq is perhaps the country which has the, the uh, strongest sort of regional uh, identity-based divide, but we do not observe such a, such a, a dramatic uh, um, ethnic conflict in, in other countries in North Africa or in Africa in general. It really depends on the context. Four main findings that I think you offered in the analyses of, the, of these uh, countries. Income playing a role in voting, dependent on historical and institutional context. The presence of ethnic minorities, not necessarily overlapping with inequalities, but translating, yes, into voting behavior. Uh, other dimensions of identity that mirror inequality and translate into political cleavages uh, the religious divide, as you mentioned, recent mass protests allowing the ability to participate politically in ways other than voting. What among those, first of all, make sure I got them right. And then what among those surprised you, if any? Um, I think something that's very interesting about Turkey in particular is the fact that um, that first of all, Turkey has a, has a strong religious divide that is very persistent, but it also has a very strong educational divide. Um, and what distinguishes Turkey uh, from other Muslim countries around the world, in particular, if we look at Pakistan and Indonesia, which we also study in the book, is that um, these two divides, education and religion, align in different ways than they do in these two other countries. Uh, put simply, the, the secularist uh, center-left uh, in, in Turkey has always been both a party of secular voters, of less religious voters, but also a party of educated elites. And this is not at all what we observe in many other uh, Muslim countries, where it's usually the country where uh, secular movements do have some form of um, poor, poor or class-based uh, history. So what's quite unique about the Turkish context is, is that this, this sort of secular divide has always been aligned with, a, with, a, with an educational divide, which uh, means that there's been a sort of, of, um, of association between secular elites and educated elites. Turkey's first election, free and fair election, was in 1950, not too long after, after World War II. Uh, the, uh, you described Turkey as a multi-party system challenged by new players. Say more about those new players, explaining for the people who are newer to it, sort of the multi-party system, and also talk about the challenge those new players pose. So as in many democracies, uh, Turkey has, has gradually fragmented from a, um, a system that was originally not uh, very democratic to gradually a multi-party system. And there has always been sort of two uh, fears in the sort of Turkish uh, uh, establishment, which was the fear of uh, unsolvable uh, religious divides and sort of uh, the rise of Islamic parties. And uh, there was a second fear, which was that of ethnic divisions, uh, in particularly when it comes to the uh, Kurd minority. And gradually, especially since the 90s, well, these two fears have to some extent translated into party politics. First of all, with the rise of uh, Islamic parties, 
And eventually, with the election of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan at the head of the state, um, voted by, by the, the Islamist uh, Justice and Development Party, which has now controlled the government for um, about two decades. And uh, at the same time, Kurdish minorities have uh, become, uh, ha have created parties. And although it's still a bit complex, so parties that are explicitly Kurd do not always, are not always only supported by Kurdish voters, there seem to be also a rise of this divide. Um, so these are the two divides that gradually have materialized in Turkish politics uh, in recent years. And say more about the military involvement, the importance of the of the military involvement in uh, in Turkish uh, politics and in Turkish sort of modern political history. So, of course, the military, as in many uh, as in many uh, other other countries, um, and we could take also again here the example of Pakistan and Indonesia, two other uh, Muslim majority countries which have undergone the same issues, has always. Uh, played some form of role in, in politics. Um, for instance, the 1980 military coup banned all existing, uh, previously existing political parties. And um, the, the military elites kind of always tried to, to balance these two fears that I mentioned of, uh, uh, of uh, avoiding uh, Islamic extremism and at the same time, uh, avoiding uh, avoiding this this sort of ethnic divide with the Kurds, and that that uh, that that led to some form of of uh, of synthesis between various ideologies over time. So it's been a it's been a, a complex process, but uh, uh, it as as uh, as in other countries such as Pakistan and Indonesia, yes, uh, the military has played a, an important role um, in in Turkish history. Erdogan uh, has controlled the government for 20 years, uh, riding discontented voters into power. It seems like almost a, almost the perfect. Maybe it is the maybe it is the case in your mind when you tell the story of well, what happens when social democracies fail to deliver on uh, fail to deliver on promises. And some of that, I want to I want to flag that for a moment because very often when I hear it, I hear from uh, socialist leaning people. I, I hear from people in, in Europe, right? In this country, that word is taken on a life mostly defined by the people who are wanting to beat back social democracy to point at any social program and to say, ah, this is some example of, of communist tyranny, right? So, but let's talk about the European experience and uh, that will say, aha, the reason, for instance, There'll be leftward attacks on Hillary Clinton, leftward attacks on the on the head of government in France uh, for not being left enough. And if they were only left enough, if they had only shown how good people could have it under a social democracy because they were really getting real benefits, then if it weren't so Clintonian, for instance, in the United States experience or in a similar it, it with similar examples in the uh, in Europe, then people would be would be satisfied and wouldn't go into the warm embrace of authoritarian leaders. But I wonder if there is, in fact, something else going on. It is not the Hillary Clinton, right? It is not the Clintonian who is blocking the social program, who is stopping health care from reaching more people, who is making it harder for government benefits to uh, impact people, who is trying to address, you know, failing to deal with uh, wealth disparities because of their own avarice or their own weakness, but in fact, that their strong opposition forces 
within economic leadership and within governmental leadership, uh, within courts that are making it very, very hard to deliver social benefits to people. And then that same, those same limiting forces, the same enemies of social democracy, then point or worst case, even, or arguably even worse than that, uh, purportedly neutral commentators point at that and say, aha, see, this is a failure of social democracy, when in fact what it is, is a success of something nasty. Um, yes, yes. I mean, that's probably partly true, but um, I think that still social democratic parties and all parties to some extent, all mainstream parties are to blame in, also in, in this process. Generally speaking, there's been a, a big a big ideological shift, which varies a lot across countries and the exact time period where this shift occurred varies, but there's been a, a general shift towards uh, less progressive taxation, less ambitious social programs. And of course, they are not entirely to blame. There are also extremely complex issues to be solved uh, at the turn of the 21st century. The first one being education, for instance. How do you bring an entire cohort uh, to, to college to, become, uh, to, to go to university? This requires ambitious investments, but it becomes increasingly difficult to, um, to do so. Uh, so I think it's a bit of both. Uh, to some extent, the, the welfare state has reached um, a state where it's very difficult to manage redistribution compared to the past, especially to the past where growth was particularly high. But at the same time, there's also been probably a lack of ambition from uh, not only left-wing parties, but all parties, I think, uh, towards ensuring uh, more equality in these dimensions. Let me go back to Erdogan and about his, how you see his trajectory and how you see his transformation, either his transformation or his role in the transformation of, of Turkish politics and Turkish democracy and Turkish government. I think an, a point that I, that I mentioned before, which is again important to, to remember here, is, is that the, the secular center-left in Turkey has, to some extent, always been uh, this sort of Brahmi left that we see in Western democracies today, that is an educated left that is not uh, that does not has not managed to find a consistent support among low-income, low-educated voters, and um, on the contrary, the the part of the population that has always felt abandoned uh, during most of the 20th century in Turkey is uh, the rural community, the rural periphery. Um, and uh, what the AKP has succeeded in doing is mobilizing the sort of peripheral regions at the same time as lower educated voters. Um, and uh, so there's, there's a strong rural dimension on top of this uh, religious dimension of Turkish politics. And Islamic parties have also been, uh, not only in Turkey, but in other countries too, uh, often successful at providing some sort of um, network-based social welfare um, and and alleviating poverty in many cases. So uh, these issues do play a role too in explaining support for these parties. Uh, generally speaking, sociocultural conflicts and economic conflicts, they always interact in complex ways. Um, and, and here I think that they, they play a role that, that's also significant in the Turkish case. So this story of, their, of the uneducated, less educated voters going for Erdogan and there being a lack of support, a failure of, or, or a disconnection between, uh, one big difference between the traditional left, not seeing the less educated voters uh, voting for the, the left-leaning candidates. Uh, I, I 
according to your narrative, at least one of the things I understand you're saying, well, yeah, because the social democracy leadership has not shown benefits to those undereducated voters or less educated voters. Uh, I see, I have to say, I see it largely as a media story. I see it largely as a, as a story of, of the means of communication uh, that, um, that it, the, the difference, for instance, in New Zealand uh, with, uh, with their success in enacting social programs, to me, the biggest variable that I see is there is not a Rupert Murdoch uh, owned TV station and media outlet in uh, operating in New Zealand, that there has not been a, a um, there has not been the kind of resource to develop a, 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 a rural or lower educated uh, attractive uh, media operation that is either neutral or that is uh, that is left leaning, but it has been very successful uh, in, uh, in in sort of the Rupert Murdoch properties. But feel free to push back on that or amplify it or offer what you think has been that gap. I mean, it, it's it's almost. I mean, I'll say another one. In the United States, I think a lot of it is race. It used to be that when the uh, when the party that was pushing, when the Democratic Party that was pushing for social benefits, also had significant overlap in the South with uh, with white identifying voters who organized around being white identified voters. There was a big working, a larger working class contingent within the uh, within the Democratic Party uh, voting class among those white voters. They used identity, uh, white identity to garner votes in the South. That's still being used, but now it's being used by the Republican Party. Uh, so what do you chalk up this, uh, this change in ability, the ability of, of authoritarian leadership to garner votes among less educated voters and the challenge of mm-hmm. more pro-democracy uh, forces in garnering votes and support from lower educated voters? Mm-hmm. So... I agree with you that the media does play a role. For example, there's recent research suggesting that uh, affective polarization, so the fact that people um, tend to uh, feel very distant from their political opponents or not willing to engage with them or very angry at them, these sort of, of, um, of dimensions do correlate strongly with the media. And for instance, it's been argued that the fact that uh, Germany invested much more in sort of uh, public media in recent decades explains why effectively polarization is particularly low today in Germany compared to a country like you mentioned, which is the United States. Um, on the other hand, the rise of these sociocultural divides and, and the, the, their interaction with economic issues is not, I don't think, um, correlates to too much to these questions of, of media use and media technologies. For instance, you talked about New Zealand. Well, today, New Zealand is actually uh, one of the countries uh, among Western democracies where the educational divide is the highest. Um, so also what we show in the book is that these long-run evolutions, in particular the reversal of educational divides, the fact that left-wing parties used to be supported by lower-educated voters in the 50s while the opposite is true today, this holds across nearly all Western democracies, New Zealand included, so it's more of a much uh, long, longer-run process that I think goes beyond these technologies, which might have played a role, but I don't think played uh, the decisive role. So what do you think plays a decisive role? I don't think there's a clear answer yet to that question, but there are at least three things that we, we highlight in the book. Um, the first one, 
which we've been talking a lot about uh, before is is the rise of these the rising importance of these uh, new sociocultural issues from uh, from questions of women's rights to the environment and more recently to immigration these issues have gradually taken growing importance in in the public space and this has increasingly divided parties uh, and so slowly and slowly it has increasingly divided voters by education the second factor that we highlight in the book has to do with education itself the fact that um, as i mentioned before it's becoming increasingly difficult to propose an ambitious um, redistributive educational program in the 50s and 60s uh, left-wing parties could uh, defend the idea that they would invest massively in primary education and bring an entire cohort to being primary educated then secondary educated today has become much more complex because the educational pyramid is becoming uh, increasingly higher and it's becoming very difficult to know how to uh, ensure educational equality and so there's become uh, uh, educational stratification to some extent has uh, uh, has increased educational inequalities have increased in many ways. Finally, uh, as I also mentioned before, I think that the rise of new sociocultural issues cannot be distinguished from the from changes in the importance of economic issues. And here, I do still believe that the global uh, ideological change and uh, changes in elite beliefs about redistribution and progressive taxation since the 80s in particular did contribute to growing disillusionments among uh, the lower educated and also low income voters towards social democratic or socialist parties. And this has um, amplified these sort of new sociocultural divides that we observe. Um, finally, I do think that, that coming back to what you were saying, um, beyond media use, there is a, a more profound crisis of democracy and trust in um, various institutions from governments to political parties. If you look at uh, countries such as the US, but also France and many Western democracies, you see that there's been a long run downward trend in trust towards uh, various institutions. Um, so I mentioned political parties, but it can also be sometimes a, a justice, uh, the democracy in general. All so there's a, there's a crisis of democracy, and this uh, fuels even more uh, these various divides and contributes, I think, to the fragmentation of the political space. So I, there's a bunch there, and I want to I want to jump into it. So the first, I want to back back to New Zealand. You used a fact. That uh, that you were suggesting, I think, just, just to offer a different point or counter my point, where I in fact think you made my point, where you said, "Well, yeah, you see, New Zealand but it has big educational stratification." But what I said was was that New Zealand is enacting significant social programs. They continue to do it, and they had to continue to do it despite having uh, a, a significant educational divide right now. And I would say, well, that demonstrates to me as additional data point. For the importance of media, that the reason they're able to do that, be able to continue to enact social programs despite larger uh, uh, educational gaps, is in significant part because there is not a, a, a big media blowhorn telling you know, millions or hundreds of thousands of uh, less educated voters that somehow social programs are their enemy. Uh, is that maybe I'm misunderstanding your point? But feel free to push back on what I just said. So. I, I think I think media is top three, and if media and if me and 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 I'll and I would push pretty hard that media is top three. 
In what way would you say that New Zealand is implementing particularly progressive programs today compared to other Western democracies? It, it, well, feel free to challenge that. That's not your impression. You, you don't think New Zealand is having that kind of success? I'm not sure. I mean, I have. I, I, I must admit that I don't know particularly well what's been going into tax policy in recent years in New Zealand, but I don't think that New Zealand has implemented a very high corporate or, or progressive personal income taxes uh, to the extent that there was in the 60s or 70s more than most Western democracies. It's true that there's been an overall rise in government redistribution, not only in New Zealand, but also in many Western democracies, but we shouldn't confound various things. The fact that there's a rise in, in means-tested cash transfers, for instance, is not necessarily a sign that uh, programs have become uh, more ambitious. On So this might, for instance, come with, with a lower bargaining power for unions, lower wages, more wage inequality. Uh, and generally speaking, I think that what people um, I think is important is not so much to be able to get a small cash transfer where when they don't find a job, it's more to find a good job with a good wage. So I, I don't know exactly what you mean by New Zealand implementing very progressive uh, so I, I mean, policies, I'll look but at, I'm not I, sure I agree I, with that. All right. So, I mean, I would look at the BBC article of why is New Zealand so progressive. I would look at the uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, success of Jacinda Ardern's platform, their ban of, of no, uh, uh, what they've been able to do. And you probably put this in the social bucket, not the economic bucket, but it, but I don't, I don't divide those in the same way as someone else might, right? I think if someone gets gunned down by an unlicensed firearm, like it impacts their life in the same way as if they die from an untreated disease, right? So I don't, I, I, I think that it is a, a political construct, it's a rhetorical construct to divide those things so sharply. Uh, but they have, uh, they've been able to address, uh, they've been able to address that. Uh, and, and it's not a show about New Zealand. So it, it's worth, you know, it's worth sort of looking into, but uh, but I guess a question that we'll leave for another time is I would say that that, that the media piece plays a big piece, like an enormous one, uh, and the. Uh, but let me take a couple of your others. Uh, you said so. You said first was the uh, the rise of other social cultural issues. You said second, mm -hmm. there's a larger educational divide, and the third was, uh, did you say essentially wealth gaps? No, I, I meant that there's been an overall move towards um, more liberal economic policies and many policies that hurt uh, low-skilled, low-income workers in many democracies. The challenge I have with those and two, this... forgive me, I didn't interrupt you, that, that there has been a trend, make sure I hear you, so there's been a trend uh, towards more uh, pro-capital markets policy and, and a trend away from policies that directly help people is that, so that number say, three yeah, i mean things are always more complex but let's say yes okay so the the challenge i have with second and third is those seem tautological the second it's like well what's the reason why or either and one could say tautological or one could say uh that it uh that it's a death spiral that it's one thing is feeding on itself. It's like, well, why, why are we seeing, it's almost like the answer is within the question. If I'm saying, well, why are we seeing a decline in educational programs? Then the answer is, well, because we're seeing a, a larger educational divide. Well, wait a minute, I just asked, why are we seeing a decline in education? Why are we seeing an educational divide? And the answer then is, well, because we're seeing an educational divide. I say, well, why are we seeing uh, 
economic uh, policies that directly benefit people on the decline? And if the answer then is, well, because we're seeing a, a decline in larger uh, in, in economic policies that directly benefit people. The question I'm asking is, why are we seeing those things, right? We, we are seeing those things, not just because we're seeing them, right? Or, or I, I'm interested in the thing behind there. And then I'm left with only the first, the only explanation then beyond those two more tautological reasons is the uh, is the rise of uh, social and cultural issues in the in the importance uh, and sort of the priority of the dialogue among political parties, which I do think is a really important driver, obviously, of the political landscape. But do you get where I'm going here? I understand, but perhaps I was not clear with the two other reasons that I mentioned, but I don't think that uh, the fact that political parties in the 80s uh, shifted towards more liberal economic policies. I don't think this is something that's mechanical or tautological with respect to the rise of sociocultural issues that ensued. I mean, this was to some extent a global ideological change. Um, it, there could have been a world where this change did not happen. I think that it happened for complex reasons. And so I'm not sure why What's this your best be guess? tautological. So, so it's your best guess. Let's let, let's dig a layer deeper. If it's if we're seeing, my question is, what is then our speculation about the global ideological shift? Right? Is it is it well with the fall of the Soviet Union? You no longer had Soviet propagandists who were who were uh, loudly arguing against capitalism. What is it? Then there was a head on a pike of of the largest communist country that demonstrated its failure and therefore uh, uh, capitalists were able to beat their chests and say, see, see where the, where the winners in any smart country is going to do what we've done. Uh, what is it? I mean, I would say, I think that the, that uh, media has played a, played a part, but in terms of if you were making uh, your own speculation or better yet analysis on minus speculation uh, on what has driven uh, those global ideological shifts? What more might you say about that? This is, I mean, this is very complex. But I agree with you. I think that uh, on the on the communism part, I think that the collapse of communism led um, many countries around the world to believe that uh, social progress entailed a sort of embrace of everything that capitalism had had to offer. Um, and I think that many countries now are realizing that this was perhaps not the best solution. But I do believe, yes, that the, that the collapse of the communist bloc uh, led uh, many people, many countries to, to sort of abandon um, social programs and actual redistribution. Uh, so this probably played a role. Otherwise, I think that, yeah, it's, it's a pretty complex question. Arguably, the fact that redistribution became more complex and the fact that welfare states started reaching a size where any marginal increase in redistribution was more complex to manage and the, the fruits from higher redistribution were not as obvious as they were in the 50s and 60s. This also probably played a role um, in, in explaining um, why white parties starting also pro st uh, stopped proposing uh, more ambitious expansions of the welfare state. The, uh, I'll throw in another. I, I find this question really fascinating. I hope it'll be in, in your, you know, developing surely to be brilliant career, something you delve into even more uh, because then you can over time help us all understand the answer. But the, uh, but I'll, I'll throw in another 
another hypothesis, which is the temporal distance from the rise and fall of actual fascism, right? That the uh, that when um, that shortly after the fall of Adolf Hitler, uh, wearing a little mustache, naming your kid Adolf, those things still you can't do. Uh, but it also wasn't funny uh, or ironic to have a Nazi flag in your parade, right? Uh, it was uh, that Nazi was not just a term that was sort of casually thrown around. There were people from uh, many political stripes in, among many countries uh, who had lived experience to say to make sure that that was not a, a not a casual joke or and, and authoritarian ideas uh, at their sort of apotheosis were obviously discredited. Now, the generation that fought, that literally fought that war, that generation is basically gone. And now we, to quote the, uh, to quote the Bible, we are now a generation that knew not Joseph. We have forgotten uh, lessons of the past. I, I'll throw that as a, as a, so when, when Erdogan comes and somebody, somebody who organized people around identity driven symbols, it would not have as many in power uh, members of the audience of those symbols reacting with as much cringe and anger and warning and credibility of warning as people who, for instance, lived through the Holocaust, who could say, wait a minute, this reminds me of something, everybody be careful. Uh, the people to say be careful are fewer and older and less powerful. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, the passing of time has made uh, the past less uh, present to people's memories. Um, although um, everybody knows history and the consequences uh, that the 20s and 30s had um, it's for, for, for a number of people today, these consequences are less present. And so it becomes, uh, they do not really um, make as strong as a link as uh, this generation did when they saw the rise of fascism. Um, so yeah, I do, I do think that it plays a role. Um, overall, however, there's no clear, very clear link between, for instance, voting for nationalist or ultra-right parties and age. Um, it really depends on countries. Uh, so I'm not completely sure that this is also a, a decisive factor. Um, but it's true that in countries like France, typically where the far right is a party that existed uh, since the 1970s, and that was to some extent uh, explicitly far right from the beginning, all the generations do remember what this party was, and they are less likely to vote for this party today than younger generations. Um, on the contrary, in countries such as the US, well, um, Donald Trump to some extent received a slightly higher support among older cohorts. Uh, so generational dynamics do play a role, but I think this role shouldn't be uh, overstated either. Yeah. And my, my view on that is much more complicated, unfortunately, than generational dynamics. It is more about uh, the zeitgeist and the, the, the hundreds and thousands and millions of individual interactions that when there was, um, that when there were people, not just about their voting patterns, but about their, the conversations they would have with their grandkid, right? If their, if their grandkid starts uh, starts spouting some authoritarian thing, the grandfather saying, hey, no, no, wait a minute, I fought a war for that thing. And the, and I'll, uh, the example I'll use, which is an even weirder one and very United States centric, is the time span of it, the, the rise of, 
it, it is not lost to me. In fact, it's maybe I'm too motivated by it. Maybe I'm, my thinking is too motivated by it. Is that we are the, the modern rise of authoritarian regimes is coming about 80 years after uh, World War II, and the uh, and if you look at the fall of uh, if you look at well not the, if you look at the Civil War in the United States, Civil War in the United States happened about 80 years after the Revolutionary War. And to me, that is not a coincidence. If I just think about lifespan, it's almost predictable, or at least more understandable, that when uh, that when there were people who were talking about in, in the in the 1820s, if somebody said, you know what, I think we should break the United States in half and the slave states should be their own country. You'd have lots of people in the North and the South saying, what are you talking about? I fought with George Washington so that we could have a country. You're not going to break up this country. And that persisted. And then those people started dying off. They had less influence. And so then when somebody said, you know what, I think we should have our own country. And somebody else said, yeah, I think that there should be, there should be a country for the slave states. The voices who would say, no, I fought with George Washington to have a country, those voices were gone uh, or old or feeble. And there was a civil war. And I think similarly now, the the people who worked so hard to build an anti-fascist Western coalition, uh, the people who all the many meetings to figure out how a, how a global economy could start to work, all the many meetings to figure out how you could have uh, a, a growing system of democracy, the people participating in those meetings are no longer have influence. And we had an interview, in fact, on this program where I was asking about, uh, about Herbert Hoover and, and how, and when Herbert Hoover was asked about his success in starting to get more right-wing economic policies to get traction in the United States, his answer was, uh, I outlive the bastards. That in fact, it was not, that the, that the ideological shift was not merely something that happened, it was something that got done. It was a, pro- a significant project or a set of projects to move the ideology of the world that happened in a context, right? And I think that context of the, uh, of, of the rise and fall of successful and, un- and less successful countries mattered. And I also think the temporal, you know, to the passage of time from, the, from those foundational conversations about democracy, I think those matter too. But forgive my filibusterish, you know, lengthy soapbox talk. No, no. I think um, I think you have you have a good point. Um, that that's probably true. Um, I would I would say that there are also accelerating factors of this transition. Uh, one would be a, a economic crisis. So so I think that the economic crisis of of, uh, of recent year from the from the subprime crisis now the COVID crisis and generally the stagnation of incomes in in many uh, Western countries and the rise of inequality these factors arguably accelerate uh, this transition and can fuel political changes much more rapidly uh, than they would under uh, let's say normal circumstances and more generally also the dissatisfaction with democracy um, opens much more space for uh, for new parties, new candidates, new ideas to emerge. And of course, they also open space for old ideas to re-emerge. And this is probably what, what's happening here. 
um, and economic shocks. I mean, there's a there's a very large body of of literature in political science and economics showing that economic sh economic shocks also uh, can lead to uh, reviving. Uh, and strengthening these divides in the short run. So I think they, they clearly contribute to accelerating the tendencies uh, that, you, that you suggest, yes. No, those, I want to amplify both of those. Those are really helpful. So, so one, so democracy sucks, right? And to, to quote the bard, not, it just sucks less, than other, uh, sucks less than other forms of government. And when you're under a form of government for a long time, the critics of the things that suck pile up. Uh, but if you're a long time away from, yeah, but you know what really, really sucked? It was when there was a dictator who killed a bunch of people. That really, really sucked. We shouldn't have that, right? And when you're further away from that, the criticisms of a democratic form or forms of government pile up. I think that is an important piece of it. And economic shocks, something else that hasn't come up that I wanna, that I wanna raise is uh, technological shifts. So we saw a similar thing uh, or some similarities with the shift from the, uh, the agrarian age to the industrial age, right? Where, where those technologies uh, allowed for much more energy to much more human energy to go into the, the seizing of that, new, uh, of that, so that new economic system that could be called economic shock or could be called the driver of, of economic shock. And now as we've moved to an information economy, heck, even the, the, the driving of Bitcoin, right, to try to reduce the power of democracies uh, to make it so that uh, you can coin money and you can traffic drugs or human beings and have a way to pay for those things. And somehow Elon Musk thinks you're a cool guy for doing it. Uh, the, uh, I don't mean the human trafficking, I just mean the Bitcoin. Uh, it is... Uh, that that technological shifts I think are another are terrifically disruptive and have uh, and have coincided with economic shocks in the past. We hadn't brought that up, so I figured I would. Feel free to respond to that, and then I got a different question. You're right. I mean, technological change. I would say more also technical technological shocks can play can play a big role. Um, if, for economists, you know, technical change is often uh, a synonym of of progress in the long run. Uh, the thing that is that in the short run, it can create a lot of disturbance. And that's um, perhaps also, um, I think, the key difference to understanding the political and economic consequences of technological change. Um, the fact that some of the changes that we have undergone have been uh, very rapid and they have put a lot of workers in very difficult conditions. Um, globalization, of course, on top of technical change is a very important factor. Um, so I think it's also about designing policies that enable these changes to evolve smoothly and to benefit society as a whole without having many losers, which are um, for generations sometimes um, left with uh, lower lifetime conditions because this transition happened uh, either too fast or without compensating for uh, losers or enabling transitions for those uh, who do not have the skills to adapt to this new technologically advanced world. So I think these policy is also important and, and the speed that with change happens is crucial to understanding its economic and political effects. Have you read or are you aware of the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Yes. It, it, I have actually back not a, read it, but I know about it. Yeah. There's significant overlap, but as, as I think back to what you're saying, you know, 15 minutes ago, 
significant overlap in your first point and your sort of three in your three thoughts of, of explanation. Uh, your first one is basically uh, maybe doesn't give either of you enough credit, but basically the what's the matter with Kansas uh, critique that. Uh, because there haven't been, it hasn't been a, a leftward party that is clearly and and loudly prioritized uh, economic policies, uh, but that has this sort of Clintonian critique or the critique of Clintonians. Uh, where where do you see? First of all, do you think the overlap? What I'm saying, I'm, I'm misunderstanding or misstating the overlap between your thesis or some of your analysis and what's the matter with Kansas thesis, or feel free to amplify it or add more. So you you mean that yeah, I think I think that that's partly right. That's partly what we what we argue. Um but of course this is not to say that um everything is simple. I mean it's not very simple to build a, a more distributive ambitious coalition uh, that can implement policies that convince uh, everyone and particularly low-income uh, voters to support you i think it's much more complicated and and what i was saying about the the, the fact that uh, the educational pyramid has become uh, to some extent higher and it's become more complex to ensure educational inequality which i think is what determines income and outcome and opportunity uh, inequality in the long run this also probably plays a role and explains uh, to some extent why it's very complex today to convince uh, voters that redistributive platforms can benefit them but i would say that generally speaking that, that's correct uh, the, the rise of of nationalism cannot be distinguished or analyzed separately from the decline of social democracy which is something quite simple and, and perhaps trivial to say I want to, before we go, ask about Hong Kong and the circumstances that led to the huge pro-democracy protests there. Mm -hmm. uh, and also you included in the same chapter with Taiwan and South Korea. What do you see as the similarities between uh, the th those three East Asian democracies? So, yes, um, these, three, uh, these three places are, are very interesting to, to study and, and and very, very different in many ways from the other democracies we study in the book. I'd say that one common point that they have, first of all, is the importance of what one could call the other in party politics. And so the other being in the case of Hong Kong, uh, mainland China, and in the case of uh, and in the case of Taiwan too, while in the case of South Korea, it's it's about North Korea. So much of party politics in these three places have been driven by divides over the other and what to do uh, with it. So foreign policy really plays a key role uh, in determining voting behaviors and beliefs and conflicts um, between parties. These three places also have uh, what we could call mostly two-party systems, which are aligned on these relations to the other. So for instance, in, in South Korea, you have uh, one side which is more progressive that to some extent is is uh, more favorable to negotiations with North Korea than the conservative side while in Hong Kong you have the pro-democracy camp which is explicitly favoring uh, more autonomy for Hong Kong than uh, the pro-Beijing camp and in Taiwan similarly you have the uh, you have two coalitions which are opposed on attitudes that uh, towards towards China and, and uh, what relations with China should be and uh, these are really the, the common points that we are serving these in these three places. Direct elections in Hong Kong are relatively recent phenomenon, yeah? 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Hong Kong was handed over um, to the People's Republic of, of China in 1997. And so uh, there's been about eight uh, legislative council elections uh, since then. Um, and the main divide, as I mentioned, has been between uh, these two coalitions of parties, the pro-democracy camp and the pro-Beijing camp. Uh, yet, I mean, Hong Kong can, is very far from being uh, a democracy in the proper sense of the world. Uh, of the word. Um, for instance, half of the Legislative Council is elected today through functional constituencies. Uh, so indirect elections. And similarly, the, the chief executive, so the, the head of Hong Kong, is elected uh, indirectly too from a pool uh, of mostly pro-Beijing candidates. So Hong Kong is very far from being a, a, a democracy in the proper sense of the, of the term. But there have been elections, and these elections have shown, uh, have revealed this very strong divide over the question of integration with, with mainland China. And say more how, about how the political cleavages in Hong Kong have responded to those transitions from the you know, latter part of the previous century. What distinguishes Hong Kong from almost all countries in the book that we studied is the generational divide. It's very rare um, in history that that uh, that general divides, generational divides are, are strong. Um, there are only few cases in the book where this is the case, and Hong Kong is um, the most striking of them. Um, I, about 90% of those born, uh, of voters born in the 90s today vote for the pro-democracy camp, compared to less than a third of, uh, of those uh, older than 60 or 70. So there's really a huge divide between age groups and so so within families too, uh, and and this divide has to do again with the integration with uh, with the mainland. All the generations are generally speaking uh, more attached to the Chinese identity, while younger generations tend to feel uh, more uh, that they belong either both to mainland China and to Hong Kong, or even sometimes uh, solely to Hong Kong as a sort of separate uh, identity and sometimes exclusive identity. Uh, so these relations are complex. Huh? Uh, the younger generations are more or less radical in, in the way they feel this identity as uh, either complementary or opposed or different from, from mainland China. But this is really the key divide that we observe in Hong Kong, uh, the generational divide, which drives almost uh, entirely voting behavior today. It's fascinating. Is there any other country that has a generational divide as stark as Hong Kong? That's got to be, it, it is, there, there is a generational divide in American politics, has been for a long time. Uh, but the mm -hmm. but nothing as stark as that is is Hong Kong an outlier in the in in generation as being a driver a predictor of voting behavior. Yes, it's very very rare that uh, the generational divide is, is so so strong uh, compared to the U.S. Clearly, this is uh, is very different. I'd say that there are two um, two cases that are interesting uh, to mention. And what we argue in, in chapter one is that often generational divides are particularly pronounced when questions precisely over political integration, uh, the very definition of political. Um, of political and national identity are into play. And this is the case in, in two other countries. One is, is South Korea that I mentioned. Uh, in South Korea, most of uh, political divides are organized uh, around questions of, attitude, of, of uh, relations to North Korea. And today, um, we observe a bit of the same thing as in Hong Kong. Uh, older generations are substantially more likely to vote for conservatives. Uh, conservatives 
at the same time, uh, do strongly favor integration uh, with North Korea as a single country in the long run. But they also have um, a much greater opposition to the North Korean regime in general. While younger generations tend to feel uh, a stronger feeling of South Korean identity, but at the same time they are more willing to uh, discuss with North Korea and, and promoting uh, more peaceful relations. The other country where we observe a very strong regenerational divide today, in, in and that has also a divide over uh, political integrations, is the UK. Um, we know that the Brexit vote uh, was strongly divisive. Um, between generations, more than in, in most. Uh, so the generational divide today in the UK is, is stronger than in most Western democracies, and it has been rising over time. And, and many believe that it's precisely because of this, precisely because of the question of uh, relations to the European Union, that this divide is so strong. And say more about how Hong Kong political issues have changed over the past three decades. Yes, so... The, the recent history of, of Hong Kong can be seen to some extent as a, as a, as a growing polarization and, and a shift uh, first towards uh, more autonomy uh, to more outright opposition to uh, the mainland China's regime and eventually to the, to the rise of movements that explicitly favor uh, the separation of Hong Kong uh, as a country from mainland China. And uh, this has been accompanied with the rise of this generational divide and has been arguably uh, fueled also by uh, the fact that the, the mainland China's uh, government has not been responsive to uh, the claims made by uh, Hong Kong citizens. In particular, one of the, one of the things that uh, many Hong Kong citizens hoped that would happen would be that the chief executive would eventually be in, uh, elected on the universal, universal suffrage. Uh, when Hong Kong was handed over uh, to China, um, there were some clauses uh, saying that Hong Kong's government should be elected democratically. And this is clearly not the case today. And this has fueled intense polarization. And the fact that mainland China's uh, attitude has become uh, increasingly oppressive uh, also has uh, reinforced the rise of these conflicts. I want to do a hard pivot back to the United States uh, and how I now, well, let me start with a question. What do you see as the most important cleavage in the United States now? In Hong Kong, it is age and, and most important is a, use, is a loaded word, uh, but starkest. If, what do you think is the starkest or most important cleavage in the United States politics right now? I think there's there's no single issue that uh, really defines uh, the, the key political cleavage in the U.S. today. I, I would say that, as in many Western democracies, it's more a bundle of issues um, that cluster and, and define strong polarization that we observe between um, the two camps. And I think that these uh, various sociocultural issues bundled together really represent the, the core cleavage in, in the U.S. today. Um, these include, of course, the environment, uh, women's rights, and the rights of minorities, uh, immigration, but also increasingly uh, globalization. And, and as, as Donald Trump uh, succeeded in mobilizing voters that were particularly uh, opposed to globalization, for instance, by blaming China for uh, the decline of uh, working class incomes, 
So all these bundles of issues, I think, represent the, the, the key divide today. And they have replaced the divide uh, that used to be more about straightforward uh, economic issues uh, in the 50s and the 60s. Although, although of course, uh, sociocultural uh, conflicts have also existed, but um, their strength has clearly uh, increased over time. And I think today they really represent the dominant dimension of, of party politics. I want to offer what I think is the most important cleavage in American politics now. And I think it is, um, and it is a challenge to, to the methodology of your work because it hasn't, because I, it is hard for me to think of another time it has been done recently in, in the same way. And you might disagree with everything I've just said. To me, the driving phenomenon in, uh, in American politics now is what uh, Yohai Bankler calls, and I would say I'm, I'm particularly within the conservative movement, the right-wing movement in the United States, I don't know if conservative is a great def uh, descriptor, but is the what he calls uh, network propaganda. What I will say is the project, uh, is the, the right-wing project that has successfully uh, defined its success as the failure of a social democracy project or of a leftist project or a liberal project or a democratic party project. Those are all different things, but they all can be painted with the same brush of enemy over the last 20 years, even beginning in, I, I would say in some respects in the fifties and then really growing in the seven, a lot of that stuff dawning in the early 1970s around the fall of Richard Nixon, that now the, uh, the identity, and I would argue in many respects, even more than race, uh, more than religion, more than age, is whether one defines themselves as a, uh, and I'm not even going to say a Trump voter, I'm going to say a right-wing voter, a Fox News viewer, a, uh, a participant within the Yohai Bankler sort of network, network propaganda sphere, and that if something falls outside of that, if it is the enemy, then that's the deepest division. It is almost tautological itself. What now is driving the political division in the United States? It is the political division itself. It's a circular division, the same way that my brain was working when I was thinking, well, yeah, economic issues are begetting, the challenge of economic issues are begetting challenges with economic issues. The, the challenges with educational divisions are creating further challenges in uh, educational divisions. What say you about what does that leave out or what is that really wrong about uh, about my still nascent understanding that the most important divide in the United States is, in fact, the political divide itself? And I don't call that polarization because or I try not to because they are not poles. It is not it is not symmetrical. It is a different thing. This this project uh, that has been funded like nothing we've ever seen that has a propaganda arm like nothing we've ever seen that has a news apparatus like nothing we've ever seen. That project is if you don't like it terrifically scary if you do like it quite successful. Um, I'm not sure what what you exactly meant by the by the sort of content of this political divides. That, that you talk about, what, what is exactly the, the subject of this divide? I'm not trying to understand. Is it about the failure it, of the it, welfare this state? Is the, this, no, the challenge is it is its own creation. It is the creation of messaging itself. It is the creation of motivation and propaganda and media itself. It is not that people are being rationally utility maximizers 
and evaluating their various voting choices and making voting choices that would impact their communities in the most positive way, but rather that they are reacting to and getting a part of a, an identity-based movement. And they are feeling that they are part of something bigger than themselves. And the thing that makes them motivated is not that the head of that movement, Donald Trump over recent history, has provided them benefit. The thing is, is that the leader of that movement has been most effective or at least most pugnacious at wanting to destroy and attack the other team. That it is in fact the, the partisanship itself, it is the right wing team itself that is, uh, that is that divide as distinct from saying, oh, well, it's made up of, and I, I could describe it, I could describe some of its core beliefs, but ultimately it is not those core beliefs or, or those core, I mean, it matters that it's almost entirely Christian. It matters that uh, Christian identifying, it matters that it's almost entirely white. It matters that it's older rather than younger. It matters that it's more rural and exurban and less urban. Uh, it matters that it, it that it is more, uh, it is less educated than what might think for a movement that is not advocating in favor of progressive taxation uh, and not voting on tax policy that is in the interest of their own economic group, uh, directly at least. Uh, so all those things matter a lot. But at this point, what seems to me is that the headline, the the banner, the symbol, the I, the uh, participation in that movement is more important to its participants than any of the precepts, any of the principles of that movement. I would say I would agree with many of your points. I don't think two perspectives need necessarily to be opposed. Um, I think they reinforce each other too. I think there's a very interesting conceptual um, difference that's been that's been made that, that I like uh, quite a lot, which is between what's been called the politics of statism and the politics of recognition. This is from a book by uh, Pradik Chiber and Raul Verma on, on politics in India. And I think it applies a bit, um, it applies quite well to this, to this context. The idea is basically that politics are often made of, of two kinds of, of dimension. One has to do with what parties can provide voters. It can be economic uh, rewards. It can also be uh, sociocultural rewards, for instance, environmental policies or immigration policies. So this encompasses uh, both the kinds of issues we've been, talk we've been talking about until now. The politics of recognition is, is something that goes much more with uh, what people feel what and, and what people feel that they belong to in particular. So it has much more to do with moral appeals um, and I think this is clearly playing a growing role in not only the US, but also many democracies, but perhaps uh, particularly the US. People don't only vote for candidates because uh, they like their programs, they, they also vote for candidates because they feel that these candidates are actually recognizing that they exist as voters, that they should be listened to. Um, and, and this is seen um, in other contexts. For instance, it's been argued that um, in countries such as uh, the Philippines, this is something that is uh, quite common. Um, and sometimes, to some extent, also it's been said of, of Thailand. Uh, generally speaking, 
there's also a strong relationship between personal leadership and the importance of these of these divines. And so I would agree with you that the politics, what I would call here the politics of recognition, uh, to take their concept, plays a growing role. What one might also call it the politics of identity, although um, perhaps these also also should be separated. I don't think that it's uh, necessarily opposed to the fact that sociocultural issues are also becoming sort of the key cleavage. The concept of cleavage is also uh, quite qu quite complex. We need to we need to precise what we're talking about. It's a bit difficult to 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 think about the main divide as being the divide itself, um, as you said. Uh, but I think that both reinforce each other definitely. The fact that uh, uh, there's a sort of self-reinforcing dynamic to the fact that one is opposed to um, to, to the other camp. Um, but at the same time, I think that these sociocultural issues amplify this uh, self-reinforcing dynamic because it's precisely conflicts over identity uh, tend to be self-destructing because they do generally do not have any other solution than uh, the sort of, of defeat of the other camp. But I want to say thank you so much. It is it is useful for me uh, and so helpful for me personally to better understand uh, global trends around democracy in order to, well, understand global uh, trends of democracy to speak tautologically, but also uh, but also to understand what's happening in the United States or attempt to. What are the big questions for you next? What are the big questions that remain unanswered for you? I think that perhaps I would outline two. We've been talking about the, the causes behind the reversal of this educational divide, which I think is really the core change in uh, voting behavior in most Western democracies today. And I think that although we've explored a couple of reasons why this reversal happened, I think that a lot still remains to some extent unknown about it. So I think there's a lot of research to be done to really narrow down the various structural factors that led to this reversal. Another question which I've found very difficult to answer and even to think about is really the rise of authoritarianism, more generally the rise of these conservative authoritarian movements that we observe. Uh, and that's precisely what's puzzling about it, not only in Western democracies, but really all around the world. In Brazil, with the, with the election of Jair Bolsonaro, in India, with the rise of Narendra Modi, in Turkey, that we mentioned, but also in countries such as the Philippines, um, with the election of Rodrigo Duterte, all these countries have very different issues uh, and very different types of political divides. Um, for instance, in Brazil, it's not lower educated that voted for Bolsonaro, it's the high income, higher educated voters. So there's something more structural, more global that goes even beyond these educational divides that needs to be, I think, unfolded. And, and this is a question to which I really don't have any answer and I haven't read anything that uh, really convinced me um, when it comes to understanding the various factors behind this global rise of uh, authoritarian movements. Emery Gethin, thank you so much for taking the time. The work is political cleavages. We really appreciate your work and look forward to your future work. Democracy needs you, and we hope that you will save it. Thank you very much. Thank you for being a democracy nerd. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger, Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy. Democracy.